with me again. Heavenly Father, this is your word spoken thousands of years ago. And now we pray that you would teach us the relevance it would have for us. Teach us to be in awe of you, of your word, your commands, and of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the very fulfillment of the law. Help us to understand exactly how we are to understand this. So speak through me and to me, even as I preach. Open our hearts and our ears that we might receive this and be changed even today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Probably every one of us here, or almost every one of us here, has downloaded software at some point. And you know how long it can take to download software. I mean, you, you know, sometimes it takes hours. And, of course, the longest thing it takes is to actually read the end user licensing agreement, right? Because we, we know how, how many hours that can take and be pages and pages and pages, right? You, you all do read that, right? Or are you liars, and check that box that says that you have read and agreed to all the conditions, right? Because the companies know that we don't read that. In fact, you might be aware that in 2005, there was a company called PC Pit Stop that embedded in the end-user license agreement that if you sent an email to the particular address, the first one who did that would get $1,000. And it took four months and 3,000, 4,000 downloads before anybody caught it. They knew that nobody reads these things. And there are even legal cases as to whether anybody can really be held binding by these ridiculously long, long documents. Life is full of regulations, as we know. Anything that you join, you're, sometimes you're, you're, you're tacitly agreeing to something, But, I mean, you, you know, you, you join a pool and you get these, these regulations. A homeowner's association, uh, you, you have all these, these lists. We don't read them or we might scan them. Um, an amusement park, you sit on a ride and they start telling, keep your hands in. The, you, know, you, you get all these rules, a school, club, organizations, a job. You get all these lists of rules. I fly a lot. And, you know, they, they've tried to make them more amusing, so you listen, but as, as you fly, and, and they say the stupidest things. They say, you know, every airplane is different, so listen. They're not different. And I assure you that I can panic just as efficiently whether I'm flying on an A380 or a Boeing 767, an emergency should happen. They're, not, they're all the same. But a couple of years ago, when I was in Costa Rica, when I was ziplining about 250 feet above the ground, I listened very carefully to every single regulation because I felt like my life was on the line. And you would too because we listen to rules and regulations when we think they really matter, don't we? It kind of depends on how important those rules are, whether we think they apply to us, whether we think it's really going to matter. So when you hear the Old Testament law, when you hear these Ten Commandments that you've heard all your life, many of us, how important does it seem to us? Or do they just kind of slip by? We, we know them, we've memorized them. How vital do they seem to us? How well are you keeping them? Last year, megachurch pastor Andy Stanley, some of you might be familiar with him, you might be more familiar with his father, Charles Stanley, some of the older generation, but he got into hot water because he said that Christians are not obligated 
to keep any of the Old Testament law, and keep, in, including the, Old, the Ten Commandments. The Christians don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. You know why? That's Old Covenant. And we're in the New Covenant. So the only thing we need to do is to keep the command that Jesus gave. He said, a new commandment I give you, which is what? Love one another as I have loved you. So that's all you need to do is love one another as I have loved you. Well, you can imagine the response he got from Christian leaders everywhere. And and the response generally was this. Hey, now wait a minute. When you look at the Old Testament, we've got three kinds of law, right? And maybe you've heard this before. We've got the ceremonial law. We've got the civil law. And we've got the moral law. And Christians must keep the moral law. Well, you know, it's interesting. Jews would not even understand those categories. Right? To the Jewish ear, the 613 commandments, I actually read through them on Wikipedia. Yeah, there's 613 commandments, traditionally, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. 613, and you, can, you too can go to Wikipedia and read through them. And the categories of what is ceremonial, what is civil, what is moral, Jews don't think of them as having separate categories. But we say as Christians, oh, we only need to keep the moral laws. And so that's what people were saying to Andy Stanley. You, 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 no, no, no. We don't need to keep the civil laws, you know, stone and adulterer or something like that. You know, we, we, we don't do those. And, and we don't need to keep the ceremonial laws. We don't need to keep the feasts and the dietary. But we do need to keep all the moral laws. That's one response. I, I think what I would say to Andy is... We don't know each other. Okay. Andy, which of the Ten Commandments would you just ignore? Which would you say we don't need? Uh, is it okay now to murder, Andy? You know, I mean, surely he would not say that. I don't think that's what he was trying to say. Actually, I have no idea what he was trying to say, and I didn't listen to the sermon. I honestly did not. But when you just discard them, are you saying, is it now okay then to disregard the Ten Commandments? Um, And then, could the other thing is, when we look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are not just a random ten samplings of the law. And that's really one of the things I want to look at today, is what are the Ten Commandments? What really are they in regard to, how do they fit in with the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant, and how are we then as believers supposed to regard them? And so... We're going to look at it in three different ways. We're going to be talking about what is our obligation to the law, what is then our response, and then how do we fulfill it. So you can kind of guess where I'm going, that yes, I do believe that we have an obligation. So let's talk about our obligation to it. Let's let's look at what the Ten Commandments really are. Now, first of all, have you ever actually looked at them carefully, specifically these Ten Commandments? Um, the numbering of the Ten Commandments, did you know, I've preached this years ago, so you, might not, you may or may not remember, the numbering of the Ten Commandments is actually not consistent between Jews and Catholics and Protestants. Did you know that? Okay, Jews do not number them the same as Protestants. Okay, Jews do not number, and Catholics number them differently from Protestants, and the Lutherans follow the Catholics. So, so the numbering is, so I was raised a Roman Catholic. So for the life of me, if you ask me, David, what's the fourth commandment? I'm lost. I have to start counting on my fingers because I memorized them as a Catholic boy. 
and they're just different. Okay, so, so the numbering is different. But generally, okay, so we're, we're Protestants here, and so we number them, okay, so that we say the first commandment, one through four, those are the commandments that regard what? Our duty to God, right? And so the fourth commandment then is honoring the Sabbath. Okay, and then we move on to honoring your father and mother. So the first four commandments, we say the nice division is obligations to God, and then the next six are obligations to man. Okay, now Catholics kind of, it's five and five, so it just sounds really nice that way. But we say the first four, and we even think that God divided them that way on the two tablets. There is no evidence whatsoever that that's why the division was about the two tablets. I don't have time to get into the other theories about the two tablets, but why, whether it's not they fit that way or whatever. But, okay, so that's, that's our division. It's a good division, okay? We also know that when Jesus was asked as a trick question, okay, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? Okay, trying to trick him to find among the 613 commandments, what's the greatest commandment? And what does he say? Well, first of all, he won't say there's only one, right? The greatest commandment is this, and he quotes from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and he changes it a little bit. He says, the greatest commandment is this, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all, and he says, you're all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. The second is so close that I'm not, going to, I'm not willing to separate it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments, all the law is based on these two commands. And it's, it's such a fantastic answer. That clever guy, Jesus, huh? I mean, they're, they're, it's so good. Well, you can also then look at the Ten Commandments and say, yes, they also do hinge that way. And they do. So the Ten Commandments are actually organized and built in that way. So that's, that's one thing that we ought to notice. But there's something else that I wonder if you've noticed. Those Ten Commandments, number, they're ten, by the way, uh, and interesting, it's one of the perfect numbers. They, um, and they're not enumerated. That's the problem, right? They don't say one, two, three. It's just not that way. That's why we don't agree on how they should be numbered. But they're also dependent on each other. Have you ever noticed that? The first one is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Unless you're Jewish. Then you don't say that's the first one. I'll come back to that. Okay? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, the tenth commandment is what? You shall not covet, right? What, do you see how they are related? If you have no other gods before you, coveting is the same idea as having other gods. And so they actually start depending on each other. If you have no other gods before you, if you refuse to have other gods, why would you covet something? Because you are content in God. You have no other gods before you. You will not covet. If you have no other gods before you, would you steal? Would you, would you take something that is not yours? Would you not be content with what God has given you? Would you not trust him? Would you commit adultery? Because if, if God is your God and, and you are serving him, would you do that? Would you not be content and trust him? Would you need to work seven days a week? Would you not trust him and rest in him to provide? Or would you feel like, if I don't do this, God's not going to provide for me. I am greedy. I must work seven days. I know there are exceptions, okay? But do you see how they actually depend on each other? They actually lean on each other. These are not random commands. So when James says in chapter 2, verse 10, 
that when you break one, you break the other. Suddenly, this actually makes sense, doesn't it? They, they really do connect. I think some people think that God says, I need some rules. You know, you, you, you can't have a society without rules. Let me think of some rules. And society does this. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Abolition, The Abolition of Man, what he notices is that the commandments show up in other world religions. And you'd expect that, right? I mean, is there any society that says murder is a good thing? Every culture says that murder is a bad thing. Sure, they may define it differently, right? There are exceptions. But murder is a bad thing. Okay, stealing is a bad thing, unless it's from another tribe. Okay, so I mean, but still, you have these. And you have societies, cities, civics that take these. So, I mean, they're common sense rules. We understand that. But God is not just saying, okay, I need to come up with some rules. Let me come up with some difficult rules. How does God come up with the Ten Commandments? God designs the commandments because they're pictures of holiness. I want you to be holy like I am holy. So do these things. These are the pictures of what it means to be holy. Do these things and you'll be like me. And so these are ten, they represent, they're they're perfect. They're perfect. This is how, these are designed after my character, God says. And these are the commandments that I give to you. You must be holy because I am holy. But there's more. Now let's get back to the numbering, which you're still probably stuck on, okay? The Jews... Although we call them the Ten Commandments, they actually call them the Ten Words. You might have heard the word Decalogue, Ten Words. In, Jew, in, uh, in Jewish theology, the first is what it actually reads. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's number one. You say, that's not a command, that's cheating. Well, <laughs> that's the first thing God says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's number one. So then what they do is, that's number one, and then what they do is, the second commandment is about idolatry. So you shall have no other gods, and the graven images, they say, well, that's just, that's just um, prohibiting idolatry. So we just combine that into one, okay? And so then, and then if you look at the rest of them, they add up to ten. So that's no problem for them, okay? Catholics, what they do is, the first one is, you shall have no other gods, Okay, and then graven images, they combine that. It's not like, oh, the Catholics, they like their statues, so they hide that one. No, no, they do the same thing as the Jews. They say, it's saying no idolatry, so they combine, they combine those two. But then they ran out of numbers, and so they separated the two coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife is number nine. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods is number ten. It's a little odd, but that's the way the Catholics did it. That's the way the Lutherans followed Okay, so I may have confused you. If you're really, if you're really curious, I can tell you more later. But that, that's, that's the way it is. But the, but the Jews, this is what's important. The Jews say, it starts with, and we always forget this line, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is that important? Because God does not say, here are the commandments, do them, and then I will save you. He says instead, I have saved you. Now, here are the commandments. Oh, that's very different. I am a gracious God. 
I have done these things for you. These are the rules. That is very different, very significant. And we Protestants, we've lost that because we don't include that when we recite the Ten Commandments. So it's like in a household, we parents do not say, if you follow our rules and if you clean our house, you clean your house, you may be my son, you may be my daughter. Okay? We don't say that. We say, you've got to do these things because we may not say it so eloquently, do we, right? Do it because I'm your father. Do it because I'm your mother. But, but it really is. These are the rules you follow because you're part of our household. It already is a given. We're your parents. This is the household. These are the rules. Okay? So the grace comes first and then the commandments. That is so important. And we miss that. People so often think that the rules come first. So God has these commandments that follow the grace and they're designed not to say, here are the rules so that um, you can earn your favor. Nor does he say, and I hear a lot of Christians say this and it's so bad, God gives commandments so that you can have a nice life, so that you can have a blessed life. God gives commandments so that you will um, have a, you know, just a more prosperous life. Right? So don't commit adultery so that your marriage will go better. Well, I suppose that's true. Don't commit adultery because I am pure. And you are my children. You must be pure. That's why God says don't commit adultery. Okay? Don't, commit, don't steal. Okay? So that what? So that you won't go to jail? Okay? So that you won't get into trouble? So that your business will be blessed? Don't steal because I am honest and you must be honest. So God's commandments are based on him. You are in God's image. You must be like him. These are God's commandments. So looking at God's commands, can we really say they don't apply to us? How can we possibly say that if we're made in God's image? It's a silly argument to look at his commandments and say, they're not relevant anymore. All right, our response. What's the people's response when they receive uh, God's commands. Well, they're terrified. They're terrified. And God, God, you know, he speaks out in a thunderous voice and there's fire and there's smoke and we would be just as terrified. Absolutely terrified. Um, the people say, you know, Moses, you go speak to God. We don't even want to be near God. Uh, we, we can't deal with this. Whatever he says, we'll do. But you, you go deal with God directly. No, people aren't, you know, we're not supposed to live and hear God's voice. So they asked Moses to be the mediator. We'll obey, we'll obey, we'll do whatever he says. People will say all kinds of things when they're afraid. Okay, fear is an interesting motivator, is it not? Okay, and God even says in verse 29, oh, that they would always have this kind of mind. That in their fear, they would obey me. But Israel only feared God when they really thought they were about to be destroyed. So it's not a final motivator. Death comes unexpectedly. Some of you might remember that. Pollyanna, Disney, 1960. It's meant to be a mockery, right? Reverend Ford, played by Carl Malden, opens his sermon that way. And Pollyanna is sitting there and she just jumps. Because this pastor needs to learn about the glad verses in the Bible. 
And he preaches a fire and brimstone sermon trying to scare his people into repentance. And by the end of the movie, Pollyanna has taught him that he should preach the happy and glad verses in the Bible so he doesn't offend anybody, apparently. Now, I looked at the text of the sermon. You can actually find it online. I looked at the text of it, and I thought, you know, it's amazingly similar to a very, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And I read the text of that sermon again. Not all of it, but I, I read it again. And what Jonathan Edwards did in 1741 during the Great Awakening is he was warning his people that if they did not repent, that the only thing that was keeping unrepentant sinners from hell was God's kindness and patience that he could remove at any moment. And so as even as he was preaching, people were crying out in terror and in fear at the pictures he was painting. And he was warning them to repent and saying, Christ is ready to receive you, but if you do not repent, you never know when you might fall into the pit of hell. So it's very similar. And that sermon and Reverend Ford's sermon, it's mocked. It's mocked. Is it right to scare people into salvation? Well, people say, oh, we've moved on from that. You know, we don't, we don't talk about a God of wrath. We talk about a God of love. You know, we're not really supposed to be making these choices. Um, in theology, we talk about the simplicity of God. Have you ever heard that term? Well, you have if you've been attending Sunday school for a while. The simplicity of God. We don't talk about partitioning God up where we shouldn't be. Oh, I worship a God of love, not a God of wrath. God is holy and holiness. God is just and justice. God cannot be separated from his attributes. And so we don't really want to just emphasize one or the other. We want to do both. And Edwards does this, but definitely his sermon is much more wrathful and threatening. And we're not so effective in evangelism if we only talk about a God of love who would never then judge anyone for sin because that's the problem is people are in their complacency and they don't think that God will judge anyone from sin. I'm not saying that those kinds of sermons necessarily convert a lot of people either. However, uh, we don't separate God into partitions. Is fear a good motivator for obedience? Is fear a good motivator? As I said before, if you believe that the threat is imminent, it is. But it doesn't sustain. So those that believe that obedience leads to salvation, they're kind of disappointed with that. Let's talk about the law again for a moment. Okay? There's a lot of confusion among Christians that believe that the, in the Old Testament... The way of salvation was by obeying the law. A lot of you believe that, and you're wrong. Okay? In the Old Testament, the law did not save. But here's the confusion. They had to do it. They had to obey it. But in Genesis 15, we see so clearly, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is saved by faith, and Paul makes a big case of that, both in Romans and Galatians. He said, look at Abraham. He was saved by faith. Don't tell me that people are saved by obeying the law. Paul says it so clearly. People were never saved by obeying the law. They were not, but they had to do it. They had to obey the law. That's the confusion. Well, then why did they have to obey the law? That's what Paul talks about in Galatians 3. He says, then why the law? The problem is Paul then doesn't make it really clear. 
He says, why the law? The law was given for the sake of transgressions. Thanks, Paul. What does that mean? Well, what he seems to be saying is, it's to show us what sin is, to show us that we're sinners, to show us that we need Jesus Christ. And so Galatians is such a wonderful book to study to see that what the law does is it shows us, ah, I see that I'm a sinner. I see that I cannot keep the law. I see that I need Jesus. The law was not given just to say, let me give you some things you can't do. But what the law did do was to curse us. That's what the law does. Read Galatians. That's what the law did. It cursed. So before the foundation of the world, as I talked about last week, God prepared salvation for all who would sin. And that's pretty well inclusive, is it not? All of us. And so Jesus was born under the law. Galatians 4.4 was born under the law. And Jesus perfectly loved his God. He is God. He loved the Father with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind and loved his neighbor as himself. For all his life, he keeps the law perfectly. And so when he prepares to die, when, he, when he's about to be crucified, he has a perfect record of righteousness. He has never sinned. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit, not born of man, so he doesn't inherit Adam's sin. No sin at all. And yet, the Jewish authorities want him killed. The Roman authorities agree to have him killed. God the Father has decided he should be killed. And he's killed for what we've done. So if you believe in Jesus, if you profess faith in Christ, what you're saying is, I'm a sinner. I have led an unrighteous life. I sin constantly. I believe my sin is placed on Jesus. And that means that when he went to the cross... He who knew no sin became sin. He dies as if he's the covenant breaker. But you know the other side of it? I become the righteous one. As if I kept the law. Christians, are you a law keeper? Yes, you are. You are a perfect law keeper in Christ. And only in Christ. That's good news. Are you happy about that? (laughs) That's good news. In Christ you've kept the law perfectly. And only in Christ. So what's our attitude now toward the law? Must you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Yes. Must you love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. And what's your attitude about that? Well, it's a holy fear. Okay, I I don't want to offend God. I'm afraid to move away from God. But it's not a fear of condemnation. Oh, we're going to mess mess up. Uh, You've messed up today. You have. We've messed up, but we don't fear condemnation. Okay, we know that our sins are forgiven. We know that Jesus has kept the law for us, and we are united with him. Therefore, we have kept the law. And so we can now say with the psalmist, I love your law. Why? Because it is you personified. It is you, it is, it is you uh, characterized, and you are making me to be holy. So the law is a picture of that. The law helps me even to become more and more like Christ. Let me close with a couple of stanzas from a very obscure hymn by John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. There were a lot of other hymns that we don't know. And and here, I, I can't remember the title of this one. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, 
since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. I'm going to read it again. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law, not because we love to be condemned, but because you have condemned Jesus and saved us. And now we see your law differently. Lord, help us then to be changed as we look at it and to love that you call us to love you and to love our neighbor and continue to sanctify us by your spirit to make us more and more like Christ whom we have met in faith, I pray. I pray for anyone here that is still struggling with that truth. And please, Lord, help us to see the law as a good thing. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.